Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community supports to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards supports that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Muy buenas tardes. Mi nombre es Wendy. Good afternoon. My name is Wendy. Uh, my pronouns are ella, she, her, hers. And I have the most absolute best honor to have um, a friend, um, an advocate, and basically a pioneer in the topic that we're going to be talking about today. I have had the personal pleasure of working closely um, with Xiomara on the topic that we're going to be discussing. I will be your host today for this episode of The Pivot, and I would like to introduce my friend, Xiomara Campos, with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Xiomara, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at the coalition? Good afternoon. Hi, Wendy. And thanks so much. What an honor to be uh to be doing this together and, and uh be working be working together um, um my experience um as an advocate i did work uh directly uh with clients with survivors for 20 years um at the program in middletown and i had the honor to be working uh with immigrants and i did learn a lot uh, from that interaction. And um, and I can say that uh, most of the cases that I did work in conjunction uh, with uh, Connecticut Legal Services, they were so successful uh, for the partnership and all the other uh, supporter agencies uh, that we had it. In, in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and I can say it is so uh, rewarding uh, to see that even though the process uh, was pretty long, however, uh, I was able to see uh, the final result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, Simara. And I know firsthand, I can confirm firsthand what you're saying, because we worked in a few cases um, uh, to be able to uh, advocate um, in a very interesting time in the country for um, immigrant survivors. So let's talk about, let's give this conversation a little bit of context. Um, I know we're going to be talking about advocacy for 
adult and child survivors of uh, domestic violence who are immigrants. Um, and as we've already mentioned, you and I have worked together in the past. Um, I think, you know, when, when we think about advocacy, most folks think about mainstream or traditional advocacy. And so we tend to center services provided to survivors. Um, in my opinion, we center them around the day-to-day -day experiences of American or white English speaking survivors uh, who sometimes do have access, even if it's limited to resources. Um, and so, for example, when we're thinking about you know, getting a survivor uh, income or securing income for a survivor. Um, it could be different um, for a survivor who is, who has a U.S. nationality or is a U.S. citizen or who has been in this country versus a survivor who has newly arrived to the U.S. And there may be different considerations, right, for that survivor um, that may or may not have status or may um, have a family of children with mixed statuses, for example, right? So we think about, uh, you know, direct deposits, bank accounts, cash flow, working hours, public transportation, you know, all these things, even though we don't necessarily always think about them, they mean different things to different people. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and depending from where uh, they are coming, because if someone is coming from a country and the person was living in a pretty rural area, they didn't even know how to navigate the bus system here in the United States. That is one thing. There is a lot of misconception as well uh, in regard to food pantry and things like that, because people are. Uh, majority of the time, they may think through misinformation that if they do go to food pantries, they can be in trouble, that if they do access the clinic, that uh, they don't need to pay anything, they will be able later to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of uh, misinformation That's that it is being repeated uh, over and over and pass it, that it is not the uh, most accurate information. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Sumara. And I think, you know, when you and I, you know, work together, and even recently when we've reconnected, we, we talked about um, education about rights, right? So there's that, mm -hmm. that's another element. Um, and we know from our own experience in the field that many families with no status or mixed statuses have little information about, you know, rights, right? For example, you know, uh, even if you're undocumented in some states, you could still have a work permit or you could be waiting, right, for status. And so um, really thinking about educating survivors regarding basic rights or poor working conditions and, and treatment is, is huge. Um, and I know you've dedicated a lot of your career to getting the right information to survivors. Um, and so a lot of these uh, survivors and their families need income and, and in a different way, right? So cash, 
um, they, they, some of them are still sending money back to their country of origin. They may have children still living in their country of origin and children in this country as well. Um, so really navigating those worlds and understand those two worlds and understanding some of the nuances I think it should be. And I've seen, you know, your work. I think it is part of the advocacy. And then the last, the last point I wanted to make before we dive into these questions is outreach, right? Um, outreach, yeah. yes. Outreach, it is, it is so crucial because it gives you the opportunity to clarify and educate uh, individuals uh, that regardless their condition here in this country, they do have rights. Uh, and if they do go and see the doctor, they need to be providing a translator to them. Uh, that is one thing that I do. Uh, you don't have an idea how much I do tell people, okay, you're going to the school and having having a meeting, they need to be providing to you a translator and you need to be making sure that you are understanding mm -hmm. what they are telling you. Same thing if you're going to be signing paper, they need to explain to you. And if you don't want to sign it, you don't feel comfortable, that is one of your rights as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for saying that. You know, I'm my mind is going back to when you and I used to do outreach in churches. Do you remember that? And yes, I do. Uh, together and really thinking about what outreach looks like in some of these communities. And so I agree with you 100%. Uh, even thinking about partnerships, um, whether it's legally, like you mentioned at the beginning, immigration attorneys, you know, um, and, and faith-based communities. Where do we, and by outreach is, what we mean is, where do we get that important information out to the communities um, in a way that's universal to everyone so that they can have the information that they need? So, yeah, and I and I know that in order uh, to be successful uh, with the outreach in the faith-based uh, community, uh, myself, um, uh, I'm a parishioner at the church where I used to work, that is the reason why I've been developing uh, that trust relationship, because that's the other uh, main thing. They need, you need to be gaining the trust. And it is, uh, you know, time uh, that, you need, that you need to be devoted. And I do feel part of that community as well. Yeah. Uh, that when they do have a case uh, that it is so sensitive, uh, they will be call me without mm -hmm. any doubt. Hesitation. And yes. I thank you for saying that because it's like partnerships and collaboration, but it's like relationship building in a very like authentic and organic way. Um, and, and the fact that you're part of that community, right? You're, uh, you go to, to a church, you understand the dynamics, I think is another strength that you bring to this, to the work, right? Because it's like partnerships, yeah, but you're also building trust. You're building relationship with the community in a way that if something happens, they know who to call, right? Yes, while I was, let me let me share a little bit uh, one situation that, oh, I, uh, that I deal with. Um, while I was doing direct work services, uh, one of my community clients, uh, she, uh, 
she she stopped going to church uh, because as soon as the order did drop, her partner uh, just to be uh, making her stop going to church, he started to be going to church. And I I asked client if she was giving me a verbal authorization to talk to the press and see uh, what we will be able to do. And uh, it was one of the most rewarding time when I got the conversation with the priest that he says to me, uh, if please tell this person uh, that if you are in church, she's going to tell you and she's going to point it out who's the person and I will be addressing the person wow. directly and telling that it is not welcome to be Wow, that's, thank you for sharing that. And there's no other way that something like that could happen is if you don't have the relationship, right? The relationship. And the yes. trust, right? Like if people, I love that. I love that so much. If people don't trust, they won't share. And, and that goes for individuals, for families and for communities, right? So, and also the response of the priest, you know, I'm so great, grateful that it was a, a positive response, right? Because that's also part of it. Um, so that's, thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's a great story, Siomara. So Siomara, what would you say is one way where mainstream or quote unquote traditional advocacy um, looks different uh, uh, for when we're doing advocacy for immigrant uh, survivors, refugees, asylum survivors? How how can you provide us one example, maybe how those two may look a little bit different? Uh, services obviously uh, may need to be different because uh, we are dealing with different factors than a, a traditional a traditional person that may speak English, may know the system may have family members, uh, do not have all the traumas that this individual did added uh, to be coming to, to be coming to the United States. And I think so based on that, uh, we need to be more open, I will be saying, because uh, every person it is totally different. In the level of trauma, sometimes uh, many individuals, uh, they do not know that in the way that they are reacting, it is because they are having so much trauma. Yeah, yeah. So would you say that there are specific experiences that immigrant survivors go through in terms of trauma um, that we as service providers should be paying attention to? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And be more, um, be more open in the sense that uh, there is a lot of things about the uh, about the way uh, that the system is that they don't even know. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that if the person may need to be going to court, will not be able to be uh, to be going at her own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah will not be able to be going at her own because uh, sometimes people, they are so, so afraid that uh, they don't know what they are going to be saying. They don't know. uh, uh, There are many things that there are unknown for them that it will be causing uh, more anxiety that they are not going to be able 
to be making the statement in the way that it should be different uh, that if someone will be supporting them in kind of a rehearse, uh, rehearse mm-hmm. in the case of the core. Yeah, and be more, uh, be put in the conversation, I will be saying, uh, more more open at the table. Uh, and uh, you tell me what it is your level of comfort. Right. You tell me what give you, what it is uh, to give you the anxiety to be lowering mm-hmm. that anxiety level. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I agree 100%. And I think, you know, taking a step back, because we know this from being in the field, but, you know, we think we've been in the field for so long, sometimes we think we know but we don't, the survivor is their own expert. So taking a step back and, and really tuning into what the survivor says is that their need is, I, I think is so important. So let's talk a little bit about resiliency for children um, that are immigrants. We know a lot of time the families are of mixed status, meaning some may have um, US uh, status and, and, and some may not in the same family. So when we think about resiliency and program design, right? Uh, thinking about the programs that we understand a lot of the kids um, start accessing when, when um, mom is, is receiving services, resiliency. What are some, some thoughts that come to mind for you um, in terms of resiliency for immigrant children? Um, if you think about service providers and also for parents, what are some of the needs? I will be, uh, in my opinion, uh, I don't think so that there is a lot of money needed. Uh, it is uh, can be built with any university or community college uh, program for uh, to be coming and reading to the children, going for a walk, doing gardening. Uh, there are many different things uh, that they seem small. However, uh, made such a big difference on children because you know children, they uh, they do have that resilience inside of them, but by providing all those things, it gives more uh, normal, mm-hmm. make things more normal for them, and uh, and integrated to the to the new uh, to the new country that they are been living. Yeah, yeah. I do like it that community health center. They do have a garden for the children from one school that they do go, and they do the garden uh, on the top of the building. And many, you know, many organizations they will be able to be doing different things to be promoting those garden, and that way children will be gardening during the summertime. And uh, and be doing different, uh, you know, different type of activities. Uh, perhaps being in partnership with the YMCA, and that way children will be able to be using the facility at the YMCA, and be uh, like I said, be in partnership with different universities. In that way, they will be able to be teaching the children to play tennis, to be playing basketball and different activities. Yeah, like that. yeah I love this. And, and it's reminding me of protective factors um, 
uh, that we we often know and talk about, right, in the field of domestic violence? Like, what are things that we can promote for children, right, and program design? Um, and I think what you're saying, a lot of it is also um, thinking about the parents, right? So when we're increasing resiliency for children, um, how can we include parents in that uh, thought process, right? So a lot of what you're saying, I think is also applicable uh, to the parents or the parent survivor as well. Would you say, would you agree with that? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, uh, you know, can be walking, can be reading, reading time, can be coloring, mm-hmm. coloring time. There are many different activities. And I know that sometimes a uh, majority of the programs, uh, they don't have a lot of staff. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have a lot of staff. However, with the volunteers and uh, be developing a program in partnership uh, with community college, universities, uh, from the social uh, work school, mm-hmm. they will be able uh, to be developing something like that, that it is not that is that expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think so that it will be making such a big difference. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, let's switch over and talk a little bit about what gets in the way of the work, right? So we're talking about resiliency and well-being, uh, what, in your opinion, gets in the way of well-being for immigrant survivor, whether it's adult or children? What gets in the way? Uh, the funds, mm-hmm. I will be saying. <laughs> uh, we need to be we need to be developing and having more unrestricted funds. That's right. Yes. Yeah. More unrestricted funds. And, uh, and, and I will be saying more long-term uh, programs in the way that those individuals become uh, more financial independent and more prepared to the, uh, to the work, mm-hmm. uh, to the work arena. Yeah. And that way they cannot be continuous being another statistic of poverty. That's right. Embrace the cycle, I mean, really, I think, you know. Embrace the cycle, absolutely, because in that way, you know, uh, if mother, uh, it is on a different level, the child will be saying, you know, if my mother was able to be coming to this country with less than I, uh, that is something that I will be able to do. And I think, you you know, you're made a very good point on restricted funds because that way I think it gives programs, coalitions, families, and survivors the opportunity to center the needs around the family. And that can look different even with within the the, the immigrant community. People have different needs, you know? Um, and so accessing funds in a way that's specific to those needs, I think it's huge. So thank you so much for for bringing that up. Absolutely, it is because, uh, you, you know, majority of the people, uh, they would like to be uh, to becoming independent themselves. However, uh, they don't have the information how to start their own business. And I will be saying more, uh, more programs and, and, and more uh, funds available uh, for people to be fulfilled those dreams. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. if someone will like, uh, do have the capacity that the person do like to cook, uh, however, the person do not know that by going to the Chamber of Commerce uh, will be able to be starting their own business. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's not knowledge that, like you're saying, everybody has. Like, how would they have that information? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, Sirmara, and then there's there's just one last question. When, when we started thinking about these conversations and developing these um, podcasts, we hope that some of this promotes conversations around practices and policy across the nation. So, you know, when we think about who will be listening to this, we think about coalitions, state organizations, advocates, lawyers, um, we're thinking about a, a broad audience. But if, if you can share what, in your opinion, would be three steps, three actions that, you know, um, DV coalitions can take immediately to support immigrant survivors. What would you say those three steps could be? A pretty good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think so that we need to be more, more open and not to be comparing uh, if one person is able to be doing this what the other person cannot be able uh, because they are coming from different backgrounds. And I will be saying uh, to highlight the, uh, to highlight uh, what are the strengths that this person, uh, this person may have and uh, be working directly with the person, but in, in regard to actions, I think so that as a community providers, we need to be working together because uh, this is something that if for whatever reason, this family do come to me because of the domestic violence, I think so that as a providers, we need to be working together for this family to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And not only, um, okay, if myself, I do see that this person do have an appointment at school to be making myself available uh, in that way, even though they will be able to be providing an interpreter for this family. However, because I do know more about the situation, I will be able to be advocating for this family better than the same uh, than the same person. And collaboration, it is uh, it is something that it is so uh, so big. Uh, I will be an, another action I will be saying for people to be connected with the language department at the, uni, the universities, because in the cases that I did work while I was doing direct services, that was so crucial yeah. for me being having a connection with the language department. Because in that way, the traduct, the all the translation, they were so 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 high in terms of a standard uh, in uh, the student. And it was in, in both ways because the student also, 
at the same time they were practicing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. were practicing and uh, and create a conscious on them as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would agree with one hundred percent. So I hear, you know, it's important for other state coalitions to have openness and flexibility because that the advocacy is going to look different. I hear, you know, honoring the language and the culture of the survivor. So yes, getting them the resources, but also as I love what you said, just because you're giving them an interpreter or you're connecting them with an interpreter or translator doesn't mean it's like, you know, no, you're still making yourself available because you're most likely working with a family that doesn't know the system that has some uh, language challenges, right? And so you're making yourself available even if there is someone to help with the language. I love those so much. And, and, and you know, and asking for a more unrestrictive money yeah. and be explaining uh, that uh, and be making that connection. Okay, if we are asking for a more unrestrictive money, we will be able uh for this family to become a financially independent. That's right. That's right. And and that's the goal that we have. Not only that's the immigrant families, but all families that are wanting to live a life free of violence. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not to resolve the situation, you know, just for a certain period of time, because in that way you are empowering that person that she's able to be uh to be providing for their entire family. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I, I mean, I am. I'm, I feel like I learned so much even from this conversation. Just talking to you, I know that we're wrapping up, but I, I want to once again, darte las gracias. Thank you so much, Sermara. Um, you know that I, I've known you for a long time, but um, I am very grateful that you're in the field that you're providing the quality work that you do and always have. Um, I am very excited about sharing a little bit of your experience with the country and other advocates and coalitions that are wanting to do this work. So thank you so so much, Siomara, for your time. Um, It's been an honor, like always. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you as well. And it is being an honor as well to, uh, you know, to be chatting, to be chatting a little bit of what, uh, what I'm being in this journey that I'm being walking. Yes. All right. Thank you. And until next time to all our, our listeners, we'll be uh, in touch soon. Take care, everyone. And thank you for listening. And now our last words, a poem by Warson Shire titled Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, the boy you went to school with who kissed you, dizzy behind the old tin factory, is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one will leave home unless home chased you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It is not something you ever thought about doing, and so when you did, you carried the anthem under your breath, waiting until the airport toilet to tear up the passport and swallow each mouthful of paper, making it clear that you would not be going back. You have to understand, no one puts their children in a boat 
unless the water is safer than the land. Who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck unless the miles traveled meant something more than journey? No one would choose to crawl under fences, be beaten until your shadow leaves you, raped, then drown, forced to the bottom of the boat because you're darker, be sold, starved, shot at the border like a sick animal, be pitied, lose your name, lose your family, make a refugee camp a home for a year or two or ten, stripped and searched, find prison everywhere, and if you survive and you are greeted on the other side with go-home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country dry of milk, dark with their hands out, smell strange, savage. Look what they've done to their own countries. What will they do to ours? The dirty looks in the streets softer than a limb torn off. The indignity of everyday life, more tender than 14 men who look like your father between your legs, insults easier to swallow than rubble, than your child's body in pieces. For now, forget about the pride. Your survival is more important. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home tells you to leave what you cannot behind, even if it was human. No one leaves home until home is a damp voice in your ear saying, leave, run now. I don't know what I've become. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E. P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.